Hello, inner circle of patrons. This is the BungaCast Reading Club. It's the end of April, and that means that it's part four of Emergency Politics and Control, which itself is the first section of the 2022 syllabus. Um, so just to remind you, we first we began the year by looking at Carl Schmidt on sovereignty and exception, then Agamben also on uh, the politics of exception. And in the last one, in March's Reading Club, we looked at fear, uh, looking at Corey Robin's account of that. Today we'll be looking at uh, another account of fear. This is fear part two. Um, that'll be the end of that after that. No more fear. Um, it's uh, an account by Frank Ferrady. Um, before we get on to that and I pass on to Phil, um, he'll be leading this. We'll take your questions from the last reading club um, on the uh, Corey Robin one. So uh, firstly, Nick Johnson commented that uh, we discussed we discussed the frontispiece of Leviathan, of Hobbes's Leviathan, but neglected to mention that it's a picture of a town under quarantine for plague, which I found kind of interesting and I wasn't aware of. Um, Nick referenced an LRB piece uh, about this. Phil, you read it. Yeah, I read it when it came out and it's a good catch by by Nick um, because we had omitted to talk about it. I mean, it's a recent kind of um, notice i suppose of um hobbes scholarship that was um you know seemed topical in the circumstances of in the circumstances of the pandemic i don't think i mean i don't think it would change my assessment of the point um because the argument with respect to hobbes and you know the role that fear plays was the way you can you know the way you can view it as fear as inducing kind of as the basis for totalitarian political control and that kind of crude understanding of Hobbes's model or the more I think the kind of the better understanding and the one that's closer to Hobbes's original intention is the idea that the you contract out of the state of nature in order to emancipate yourself from fear essentially or at least from the perpetual kind of um, insecurity of the state of nature and that fear plays a rational role in this but it isn't um, a conspiracy in order to enhance government power but rather the basis of social order and political life um, and so to that extent, I, you know, I think um, the notion, you know, the plague doctor on the frontispiece is the idea that the state has the capacity to respond to emergency, including outbreaks of disease, and obviously particularly important in the um, early modern period, but um, not the idea that locking us all up is the quintessence you know, kind of putting the nation under house arrest is the kind of quintessence of Habesian order. Mm -hmm. he, he persists in saying Hobbesian. Um, because that's the correct pronunciation. Anyway, all of our well, listeners no, agree. This is, yes, this is, it too, is. It's too try hard. It's obviously too uh, try hard. Then how would you pronounce it then, given that Hobbesian. his name. Uh, it's not Hobbesian, is it? How can it be Hobbesian, given that there's an E between the B and the S? Hobbes. Hobbesian. Well, anyway, anyway let's not. I'm not going to argue about this with on. your unlettered, with you unlettered Philistines. <laughs> okay, so Matthew Black. Um, responded to Phil's question about the bait and switch approach that Corey Robin has in, in uh, his in his book um, and why you would write a book this way. Matthew says, actually, that's ideology critique in the sense that the German ideology is only ostensibly a book about Stirner and actually a book about private property. Um, and then he also goes on to say, and guys, jump in if you want to comment on any of this, as to whether workplace fear is really as fundamental an institution as private property. Uh, I think it can be argued for the US. Uh, apart from at-will employment, we also have this long history of witch hunts and literature about it. And I think that's I think that's probably right. I think we made that point, or I made that point in the recording that certainly in the US, fear probably predominant to the workplace in a way that in Western Europe it might be more attenuated at least. Um, uh, I'm still skeptical these kinds of... I think these arguments that try to trade off the kind of European welfare state against the, um, you know, the supposedly more flexible labor market of the US, I just think, I mean, partly it's kind of trucking in caricatures from the 1950s and 60s, but also I just, you know, I still, I'm I'm still not convinced. I still think like that it, there are plenty of oppressive things about the workplace that are not characterized by fear, I think. So I yeah. just don't accept the idea that it would be the dominant, um, you know, the dominant 
attitude or disposition towards the workplace would be fear. Well, this, this, this question, about... this question of uh, using fear as an explanation or as a way to characterize a whole range of social phenomena, of course, is going to be something that we'll come on to discuss. Um, so maybe we'll put a pin in that. Um, yeah, sure. I mean, as for the German ideology thing, I mean, I take Matthew Black's point. I mean, it's quite flattering to Corey Robin, I suppose. The difference is, though, that the, um, you know, with the Marx's point in the German ideology is to show how all of these different political impositions uh, correspond to different understandings of underlying um, property relations, capitalist social relations, and so on. And that's not exactly the bait and switch structure of Corey Robin's book. Um, because he's not suggesting that the different models of fear are just ideological expressions of different kinds of property relations or different kinds of economic structures. Rather, he's saying that there are, you know, that there these are superficial to some extent because they miss the core experience of fear in modern society, which is in the workplace rather than attached to the state. So I think, you know, the bait and switch, so to speak, is of a different character to... Um, to the Marxian one in the German ideology. So I don't I don't quite accept that. Okay, so um, Matthew also goes on in responding to George's point that it's anxiety, not fear, that's always anticlimactic. Fear has a definite object, the bad thing is known and either it happens or doesn't, whereas anxiety lacks an object. Um, and I guess I, I assumed that George had made a point about fear being anticlimactic, but, uh, or, or anxiety. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <clears throat> we have very... You know, very good questions, learned listeners. But I have to, uh, I have to disagree. I think fear can still be anticlimactic. I mean, particularly in Hobbes's um, understanding of this kind of idea of expected displeasure, because it's something that's projected into the future. It, it you you can overestimate how bad something's going to be. Like I was, you know, <clears throat> think about a time that you've been uh, afraid of something, something a definite object. I was, I was uh, fearful of giving this. Um, presentation and then it wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be I mean you could argue that there's some sort of anxiety building that up but the I think that's not correct I think in fact there is a um, <clears throat> and that's important because you can kind of go in between the, the the current and the present and the future in terms of like what is that displeasure which is going to be anticipated and you can exaggerate it or you can you can play on that so I think it's important for Hobbes's um account that you know fear is not always a one-to-one -one mapping of how of the level of fear with the badness of the of the displeasure and so if it becomes realized it could be less bad than you thought it was going to be well and uh the the next point also from from matthew black before we wrap up these uh listener questions with relation to the previous episode is that the political appeal of hobbes's notion of fear to the present is that it's simple. It's just obvious to Hobbes that the affects of individuals are conditioned by their government and there's no depth. Either someone or something is trying to kill you and you should fear it or they're not. And so you're fine. And I think that's kind of interesting because it refers to kind of the thickness of civil society or, ra or rather at that time, the lack of like a lack of thickness to civil society, um, which is rather different to today in today in a context in which fear might be kind of free floating and, and passed along through civil society, which, uh, as it happens, is sort of the subject of the book we're discussing today. But just before we get on to that, I want to update you on the local reading clubs. Several of you have already been meeting, uh, discussing the works, getting back to us with questions. Uh, that's people in Dublin and London. Uh, in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, and Toronto. Uh, there's a couple of others where there's a group of you we haven't met yet. Again, get in touch if you need help coordinating or anything. That's uh, Chicago, New York, Berlin, Stockholm, uh, and Yorkshire, Northeast England. But there's a whole bunch of other places where people are looking to set up reading clubs where they haven't met anyone uh, locally. So if you're in that region and would like to meet up with fellow listeners, have an opportunity to discuss these works and kind of make it a... Uh, a dialogue between us. Uh, there's people in Amsterdam, Groningen, Leipzig, Milan, Munich, Tallinn, Glasgow or Edinburgh, LA, uh, New England, Philadelphia, San Francisco, Vancouver, Winnipeg, Washington, D.C., and Sydney, Australia. So if you're in any of those places, again, get in touch with us, info at bungacast.com, and I'll again be posting that list, which we posted a little while ago, um, with the main contacts for each of the regions. But now uh, I'll hand over to Phil, who's going to take us through this episode. So we, with Corey Robin, um, 
it was, I mean, as we've just been discussing, he tried to, in his book, he tried to get away from political fear that's associated with the state, the paradigm in our recent times, at least prior to lockdown, being the global war on terror. And he suggested, obviously, that the common everyday experience of fear was the fear in the workplace, what he called fear American style. And this month, we're in a similar kind of move, or at least an analogous move, not a similar one. Um, Frank Faraday's book, How Fear Works, which is the latest iteration of a series of books that he wrote um, on the sociology of fear, beginning with Culture of Fear, back in which he published back in 1997. And so he too tries to get away from the question of political fear, um, but in a very different way. Um, and as the title suggests of the original book, Culture of Fear, to find fear as a disposition, as an effect, as a predominant outlook, as something which is embedded in all sorts of different um, places, not just the workplace. In fact, um, you know, uh, the, the workplace isn't really discussed in any particular detail, but everything from banal lifestyle behavior to media, NGO scaremongering, to child rearing, to education, as well as the kind of the grand challenges of terrorism, climate change and what have you. So the author is um, an emeritus professor, a sociologist at the University of Kent, um, where I'm currently based. And he was also previously, I mean, no, you know, renowned for being um, the chief theoretician and one of the political leaders of the Revolutionary Communist Party in Britain until it disbanded in the early 1990s. And his preoccupation with questions of um, subjectivity, vulnerability, and uh, authority. All of these have been um, the theoretical themes that is developed since the dissolution of, um, of the Revolutionary Communist Party and his shift away from more explicitly Marxist themes. And so that's interesting on many levels. I mean, not only because fear, the politics of fear is interesting to us for obvious reasons at the moment, um, but also uh, the attempt to develop new theoretical frameworks that um, go beyond um, the Marxist understandings of class struggle, because understanding how far they succeed or fail, I think, is also an important, um, obviously an important question. And I just want to, before we get stuck into it, um, I wanted to establish, I suppose, something which might not be familiar to all of our listeners from the middle of the 90s, particularly given that I'm the daddy of the pod. And so I remember, I'll remember this better than Alex or George, particularly George. I mean, Alex wasn't in the UK at the time. Um, but the point about the kind of the culture of fear or um, in scare quotes of the mid 90s, I think it was a very real thing in a way that's difficult to appreciate looking back. Um, so so even your, your argument is you had to be there. Not exactly. So even if, even if, well, I mean, so to, I mean, just to point, you know, just to, I suppose, try and make it concrete, even long before I was, um, you know, kind of uh, academically educated um, at university or was familiar with any of these arguments or had encountered Frank Faraday or anything like that, um, you know, there was uh, the mid 90s, there was clearly, there was constant panic mongering in the news um and this so even kind of you know in my early adolescent memory a few moments kind of stick out one was the creutzfeldt jakob disease so the idea that um mad cow disease would jump from beef to humans and i remember you know this being kind of a focus of discussion point in my family there is a ha it turned out there were a handful of cases in which it happened but at the time you know what i recall was people were talking as if it was going to be an epidemic um, the other element of it was paedophilia. Um, it seemed like, and you know, that, that you couldn't kind of um, open up like a, you know, you couldn't turn on the news or open up a newspaper without another story about um, a child being tortured, murdered, kidnapped, sexually abused. Um, and this came to a head with the infamous um, murder of uh, Jamie Bulger, a toddler, by two older boys who were about 10 or 11 at the time. And so this sense of um, pervasive anxiety, I mean, it was a genuine thing is what I'm trying to put across, I yeah. suppose. 
um, and that it was very pervasive in British society. So, um, and and I think actually the the best testament to that is actually the satirical rendering of it in Brass Eye. Um, which did a whole series of of episodes in 1997 on you know children or and then another one on drugs and then another one on animals uh, and then it came back and did this pedophilia special in 2020 in in uh, 2001 I think it was which was scandalous it's still some of the best media satire out there but the media has beca- since become even more ridiculous to the extent that that satire might not even hit that much because it just seems like a, a direct representation of what the media is actually like um, but I all yeah I, I think that's all well put phil that it's true that that stuff was across the media everywhere yeah so it's um i suppose the point is that these these themes were not only um real social phenomena real kind of um and real artifacts of um the mass media in britain in the mid-1990s so there was a genuine phenomenon there that need you know that um demanded explanation particularly because it corresponded so clearly with the political changes that came at the end of the cold war um and so the effort to link those things in so far as it's possible to link those things i think was you know ambitious um and insightful so even if the you know the correspondence and the drawing of those connections is um you know uh, you know we have a, you know we might come with up with criticism might find it unsatisfying or unconvincing in the way in which Brady does it but nonetheless the you know the it was a genuine phenomenon and um its particular context within which it occurred um does require explanation so that with that preamble out of the way um, let's um, get into discussing this. And I suppose the good point to start at is what is the difference between um, the Freudian approach and Robin's approach? Culture of fear versus history of fear in, as, or a politi- in terms of the history of ideas. Yeah, I mean, I think it's probably, you could, you could kind of simplify it that, <clears throat> so Corey Robin looks, I think particularly, well, particularly in the first half of the book, it's, you know, political theory, it's history of kind of political concepts in specific thinkers. And I think that's extremely illuminating. I think the Faraday's approach in this book is, I mean, I would sort of say the idea is it's kind of associational more than anything. So it's an attempt to outline, you could call it like a structure of feeling if you wanted to to, to use that concept or just like what, what are the cluster of changes and the sort of the key ideas and kind of cultural dispositions towards important things and how do they relate to each other and how do they kind of inform um, each other in this kind of interlocking set of um, set of I guess ways that people orientate themselves to important things like morality meaning the subject uh, the future all these things so I think it's it is a very different um, a very different project because I don't or my interpretation was that Freddie's not really as concerned with as other accounts might be with like what causes this this change um in terms of material factors instead it's very much a cultural um explanation yeah yeah though what does i mean you know what does that mean because the you know the i mean it would be given the kinds of themes that became prevalent in the context that i've just kind of outlined in terms of mid-1990s britain the end of tory rule the beginning of blairite rule the end of the cold war and the political restructuring you know, what does it mean to say, you know, what, how do you provide a material account, say, of um, the pervasive anxiety about paedophilia, or a material account yeah. about the fear of um, mad cow disease jumping from animals okay. to humans? Okay. I mean, that, that's, a, that's a valid question. That I think what's notable, though, that is that in this book, there isn't really an attempt to do so. Um, because although he notes that it, these changes are recent, uh, he doesn't really identify specifically when it started to change or why that would be um, at those point in time. And in general, I mean, I think to, to compare them, yes, they're both attempts to sort of demystify fear. Um, but for 80s, one is not obviously a philosophy or a history of ideas proper, nor does it even really come off as concrete sociology because it's a little bit eclectic. Um, going jumping from Aristotle to you know media headlines and so on, um, and so it, in the end it, it ends up quite free floating in this space where affects play basically. So like oh this this is a place where fear is happening because look there's 
um, a testament to fear in this media headline or in what the British Medical Association has put out, as well as in reference to, um, you know, contrasting to what Aristotle may have said. Um, and so that in that regard, I find it unconvincing because he reads off people's affect from those trying to scare them basically. Um, but those trying to scare them themselves are not necessarily agents of this, as I guess we'll come on to discuss. Um, they're mere yeah. conduits for a culture. So, I mean, I suppose the point is what for AD, for better or for worse, um, what he's trying to get away from is the idea of fear purely in instrumental terms. So that it is a intended um, as an instrument of um, political domination or social control, and that it clearly goes, you know, it's clearly not reducible, the, phenom the kinds of phenomena that he talks about are clearly not reducible um, to that kind of um, understanding. So he gives us, instead of seeing fear purely as this kind of crude instrument of control or manipulation, he gives us instead this kind of potted historical account in which he shows about, um, I suppose it's a, essentially a, a narrative about the rise and fall of modernity and in which confidence about the future um, and a more robust and um, confident outlook is displaced by one of fear. And so I suppose that, you know, where I suppose that pushes us to how does he account for um, the origins of fear in that context? Well, I think I think that's not really the project. I think that the, instead there's, a, I think, a lot of very useful phrases and a lot of kind of the vocabulary and, and methods of how, you know, the contemporary culture of fear works. I think, you know, teleology of doom, talking about time, time bombs, objectification of change you know moral panics is not his not his phrase but there's a lot of like what are the techniques and what are the um <clears throat> i guess what are the tools because i i don't think that that's you know it's, it's a very big project i guess to explain how and he does make sort of historical comparisons quite often but there's not an you know it's not a, an account of like here's how it changed and why i think the, the maybe i'm just maybe i'm misreading it a little bit but I don't think the why was as no. I, I think that, I think I think that's right, and I think you know modernity as a concept appears too infrequently um, because it the narrative that's there would suggest a dealing with the contradictions of modernity, but contradiction isn't even a term that appears in it. Um, so while there's some, you know, I, I agree with George that there's some good bits in which he identifies, for example, the way that we see the future as open and yet at the same time unknowable, unplannable and uninfluenceable. I mean, basically that we, you know, we can't know the future and we can't change it either. Instead, we live in a world of hyper change um, and where, you know, kind of risk and uh, proliferates and our only attitude towards that is precaution, you know, kind of unknown unknowns that we have to be afraid of. I think those things all hit home. I think they, I think most people reading it would agree with that in, in, in the sense that like, this seems to be a, a feature of our times, but at the same time, um, the kind of trans historical scope of, of the thing only lends itself to a conservative narrative of the fall. Um, so basically, when when were the good times, right? So he finds, he refers to traditional values, which allowed us to understand and cope with fear in a productive way, to uh, in, encounter the future with confidence and courage. Um, and that existed among the ancients, of which he has a potted selection of, in the Renaissance, in the Enlightenment, and indeed up until probably, I guess, pre-World War I Europe. Um, and that's when things turned downhill, you know, from the 20s and 30s onward. So, it, I mean, what possibly happened in that period? Well, that yeah, well, no, no, of course, it's, it's important, but it's also not explicit. Right. Um, I, well, that's, so, but that's what I mean. I mean, there's so, so, so much. So let which... me just finish. So it's, it's sort Sorry, of. Yeah. yeah. So I guess and this is reading between the lines because it's not at all explicit. It is the end of. Uh, you know, at the end of bourgeois society traditionally conceived, um, which ended in 1913, basically, and bourgeois man um, who had, you know, a confident attitude towards freedom and so on. And this is discussed in a whole bunch of other sources. I think we've discussed this previously on the Reading Club in, in, in previous iterations. Um, and that, that all ends there. You know, this is the moment that Freud right and it diagnoses in some way the end of bourgeois man um so that's there but or that's reading between the lines Freddy isn't explicit about it yeah um i suppose i mean it's the big you know the question because it's um the big you know the uh 
so much as tacit and pointed to and it's the bind that he finds himself in because he's trying essentially i mean you know uh, and it doesn't require any kind of particular insight to draw this point but he's struggling with the or trying to account for phenomena without wishing to talk about um working class politics essentially um so that can only be kind of vaguely alluded to um, but the underlying thematic is, you know, that it's a society in which um, the most, the single most kind of important political effort to master the direction of that society and to subject it to some form of um, rational control failed. And that is the aftermath of where of what we live in. So, but he doesn't want to provide an account in those terms, and so he's kind of caught in this bind, where it becomes this, um, you know, it becomes this kind of amorphous. He describes phenomena that are amorphous and um, difficult to kind of centralize and locate, but also talks about them in the same terms. So, you know, kind of accounts for them in terms that correspond exactly to the phenomena, rather than being able to offer as kind of something which accounts for um, the phenomena in terms of human agency. Yeah, but I, but well, I, think, the pro I think the problem goes hmm. deeper, if I can, just because he says towards the end of the book that he's not a golden age, that there is no golden age to which he wants to return. At the same time, he leans on the idea of traditional values that's kind of early on the book. And he says, you know, basically says it was good when we had traditional values and now we don't, which itself is problematic because it, would, it suggests a continuity of traditional values from classical civilization up until 1913, or at least through the Enlightenment. So that's also problematic because the Enlightenment marks a very clear break with tradition. So that's also kind of yeah, question indeed. begging. And then, on earth and then you and, values. Exactly. And then you have the problem that there aren't, there isn't even any tangling with the concrete contradictions of specific ages. So for example, the Enlightenment itself was has various contradictions, specifically in relation to fear. And we can refer to uh, Corey Robbins' account of Montesquieu. Montesquieu was, a, was afraid of despotism, for example. Um, but that, isn't a, that doesn't appear here. Instead, the Enlightenment is presented as unitary, monolithic, you know, confident and courageous. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot to, to be said for the Enlightenment, but, you know, it, it, there's no real grasping with the contradictions of modernity of which our current problems and anxieties and fear of the future is part of, right? And, and that doesn't yeah. appear here. It's just this kind of narrative of fall. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I may, yeah, I guess I, I, I accept what, what the two of you are saying, but I think that's, there is still a lot of value in, in the way the contemporary, yeah, the contemporary contradiction. It's not even contradictions because that's not the, the language that's used, but like how does morality relate to meaning, relate to the subject, relate to safety, and how are all of those things, um, like what is the structure of all these concepts which produces, you know, a society which is which is centered around fear? I, I, I thought that was that was very useful. I mean, in some ways it's like I, I would be prepared to read this book with the like given the given the decline of working class politics that's the the in brackets at the beginning and then all of this is like what, what are the consequences culturally i mean i think that's probably projecting quite a lot onto the the book but you know that's that's i guess essentially how i how i read it that that's that's the starting point and that's might might not be fair no but I, well, I think what what i find frustrating about it in, in that regard you know is that there are insights there. So I think one important point that he makes is that it is not knowledge um, that can be the solution. Rather, the problem is, and it's not the fact that we lack knowledge, so are unable to deal with uncertainty, but rather that authority has lost, it's not, uh, excuse me, knowledge has lost authority. Because previously, what happened is that reason and science came in and, and took the place of morality and God. This was the Enlightenment's great contribution right so instead we can try to figure out the future through reason and science and change the future and that gave it a confident attitude now that uh, that knowledge no, lacks authority and therefore we feel all at sea and i think that's kind of interesting but again there's a thing that kind of seems obviously lacking from there is that the cause of that is market world for lack of a better you know the, a, a society in which the market and the values of the market are completely predominant and unchallenged and in that situation of course knowledge becomes um, you know, becomes withered away and undermined and its authority is lost. And, you know, you can think about something more 
politically contemporary, where you think, for example, of the forces of technocracy and populism, something we've discussed a lot on this podcast, both undermine knowledge, albeit in different ways. You know, technocracy thins out knowledge to become merely like technical implementations of things, calculating risk and so on. And populism through its philistinism also undermines knowledge. And these are political ways you can you can say, hey, this is why um, authority has been undermined. Not authority, sorry, the, the authority of knowledge has been has been undermined and withered away. But that doesn't appear in this book. So it, it feels like so, that's interesting, but pursue that thought further. It's somehow not developed. So I think, I mean, I'm, you know, I think this effort to turn away from not only to avoid kind of casting fear in purely kind of instrumental terms or to suggest that it's um, a kind of cynical instrument of political control, but also he's concerned for ages concerned to push away from more obviously political fears, um, terrorism, climate change, um, and general anxiety about the future, and to pick up on the way in which it predominates in very ordinary banal moments. So examples, you know, such as people clutching water bottles because they're afraid of tap water, proliferation of safety signs in public, um, the infantilization of students by treating them as um, intensely vulnerable and fearful. Um, so I think it behooves us to consider how, how significant these kinds of phenomena are. Um, and I suppose following on from that, is it possible to connect these kinds of social, these kinds of uh, ordinary everyday social problems of fear with larger political questions so i, I think there's a, a kind of a, a point made early in the in the book that's not really sort of followed up on um which is around competitive scaremongering this is the phrase that he uses um and it's i think this this is an important part of Corey robbins account is you know who's the political aspects of who's interests are being served like who does what to whom for whose benefit like i think this is you know a really important question and i think without without that it's you know it's difficult to um i don't know it's difficult to kind of situate these kind of everyday fears or to put them in their political context and in in quite the you know quite a satisfying way so i think that the you know, I think it, there, there is a framework into which these these kind of apparently disparate fears fit, but without asking like the question about interest, I think it's difficult to kind of to place them in there properly. But I suppose, I mean, that's the, you know, that's the question. I mean, what interests are there? You know, like it's not as if the, you know, kind of the um, proliferation of safety signs in public space is explicable by evil corporations that are manufacturing safety signs, you know. So, I mean, I think to. Well, uh, there's, you know, there is a safety-ism, you know, there is a. Yeah, I mean, no, there is a safetyism, but is it, you know, is it something that is kind of cynically manufactured by people to make money? I mean, that's the it clearly isn't, and nor is it not to make money, but control. But but I think yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, but I went through noting where he made references to uses of fear, and literally, there's like two or something. So it's really not very present. Though there's one on page 104 where he talks about the way that these surveys of how millennials expect or now have been led to expect that they will be financially worse off than their parents, that their health outcomes will be worse and so on. Uh, In the current climate, such statements of opinion are fatalistically converted into hard facts about a future foreclosed to today's youth. And he goes on to say that this is connected to, you know, these are cultural and political forces that restrain society's hope for the future. Um, And so there, there's a, a, a sense in which the, the fear is used to foreclose any sort of positive disposition to the future to, to change society as it is and to provide hope. So I, there, I think there's a there's an argument there, right? But again, it's not followed yeah. through. In fact, that's a rare that, mention of it. Yeah, without that, then the, the kind of, the explanation is almost by default that people are irrational or like they're fearful because they're yeah. fearful. Like, yeah. I mean, it becomes, I think yeah, that is a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a problem with the book that it has this kind of, um, uh, you know, it has, I mean, it has the kind of structure of porridge. 
um, very shapeless <laughs> and formless in terms of the argument and the structure of the narrative, precisely because it's so difficult to locate um, what the process is, what's driving it, and what is the agency behind it. Not to say that an agency obviously has to be, um, you know, kind of a cynical, a cynical master manipulator. Um, and I think that's the, I mean, that's the kind of the difficulty in. Um, and the difficulty in kind of trying well, to and, and then the, and then there's sections and then there's sections which you can maybe identify with like for example the safetyism right the kind of everyday stuff and you're like yeah yeah i kind of i find that annoying right i feel i can cope and i handle myself and whatever i don't need all these safety warnings and whatever it's, it's irritating but then it's like there's bits which are just so easy to caricature um or to satirize like where he says that you know being scared of taking the sun is like basically an offense against dracula <laughs> you know dracula was was afraid of the sun do you want to be like dracula coco chanel who made suntanning glamorous and now people don't want to go go in the sun and yeah, even aristotle you know rep recognize how good the sun was and now we're basically you know going against all these um historical figures and what, what treason to to traditional values by being afraid of of getting skin cancer and it's like yeah but i mean come on like it, it just kind well, of seems to weaken the whole argument that's a problem that you have more in in brazil than in the uk we don't really have that much sun to be to be afraid of here you have no faith, uh, unsurprisingly, have no faith want, in global warming it's, it's, Austra it's an australian problem actually it's a country with the highest incidence of skin cancer and the reason is is because it's a bunch of white people living in a place where basically people had evolved have very dark skin um so you know it's, it's uh, blame australia Wow, take that See, in your no, diatribe against to... settler colonialism alex you're undoing the brazilian nation itself you're not a true brazilian <laughs> I did want to come back to porridge because in fact it's an interesting link to one of so one of the things that I <clears throat> sort of noticed when reading about when sort of reading this book and looking at the news and that phrase of competitive scaremongering ringing in my ears which I think is a, is a very useful one so the, the British government wanted to get big restaurants to put calorie counts on menus but this was opposed by <clears throat> some campaigners on the grounds it could be quote unquote deadly for uh, those with eating disorders and it it just who were already struggling and I just thought, yeah, this is a good example of kind of safetyism versus vulnerability in this competitive, competitive process, which is all leaning on, on fear. It's, you know, part of the language of that kind of fear and vulnerability of the way in which political claims are. Yeah. So this, I mean, this, made. this takes us to kind of, I suppose, one of the central questions. What, how does this link to the idea of a subject that is constituted as fearing or vulnerable? Is it product or effect, or if it's both? I mean, you know, how do we untangle that? It's tricky yeah. because it's asserted, and it's the vulnerability of the subject is read off from agents, you know, NGOs, public authorities, the media, telling people that they should be vulnerable, which I, it's definitely a phenomenon. But I, but I, it's not so obvious yeah. to say that means that people right. feel vulnerable. I think that's right. So he wants to, he's caught, he's kind of struggling because he wants to make the case that it's not in if, you know, it's not simply produced by mass media manipulation, um, but then is unable to account for it in terms, except those that are essentially, you know, evidenced by reference to mass media, public authority, the behavior I'm of public authorities and so not on. Sure, not sure I agree, because he talks about socialization into kind of the way that children are <clears throat> socialising into internalising precautionary cultural attitudes, going hand in hand with the devaluation of adult authority. Um, and, you know, in that sense, fear is sort of a more rational response from children, given that adults have abdicated their responsibility to protect them. I mean, he doesn't actually, I don't think he draws that point. But I don't out, think that, that's but... not quite right, George, because he's not claiming that it's the product of how we raise, you know, just it's a purely the product of child rearing and that you could solve this by rearing kids in a different way. The well... reason we socialize children like that is because the adults themselves have these values, right? Yeah, the child rearing reproduces this culture of vulnerability, culture of fear, and so on. That's definitely the case, though it's, it, he concludes, obviously, by seeing that as the hinge point, the point of leverage where this cycle could presumably be broken through changes to how children are reared, how education happens, right? I think that's like the one point of uh, yeah. leverage or the one kind of exit to this very tragic story of completely dominating, totalizing fear. 
I think he he believes that children are the future. If you lead them right, then let them light the way. I mean, that's that's a that's a some ways kind of a liberal. Put your faith in education. Put your eggs in the next generation's basket. That's not the right phrase, but you know what I mean. That sounds that's creepy kind of a, too. You should that you should. Yeah, you should, yeah. yeah. Uh, anyway, one one trick that I think he misses in this in this discussion, or maybe it's something that's changed since he wrote this, is the. <clears throat> has an interesting discussion of courage and this is one of the sorts of i guess more traditional values that he's trying to to defend and that's you know that that is an interesting project but i i just thought like well actually what what is what is most likely to be described as courageous or brave today it's actually somebody showing their vulnerability or showing their trauma this is i think this would be catherine Liu's uh point or definitely drawing on some of her work it's like well actually that's interesting because then even even courage which is supposed to break out of this kind of fear vulnerability nexus is like goes through it and has to has to talk in its language so i don't know i don't think just a call to to courage is is it's not that easy unfortunately so morality i mean part of the the argument is framed frequently in terms of the disintegration of traditional values and morality is also um you know, plays an important role in Faraday's account. So, um, in his terms, if um, if this you know, and if this is uh, if this isn't the right framing, then um, we should you know feel free to correct me. But if the absence of moral consensus is the basis for our inability to properly broach or overcome fear or properly um, reckon with um, fearful things, make sense of risk, um, is restoring moral consensus the right the kind of the response to the prevalence of fear is it consensus i mean that's that would be m- m- my question in the way that i mean consensus appears but it's often spoken about in other terms in terms of having the moral resources so it's not necessarily consensus but there's an element of you know he hints at this idea of a kind of moral substrate which is unquestioned by everyone which allow which gives us the resources to inf- confront fear um so it's not necessarily consensus but there's an element of an un, of a tacit morality which underpins everything and here of course he it's a reference to um and he, he appears in the book once or twice to um mcintyre's work and you know, who's a kind of formerly Marxist, now Catholic uh, virtue ethicist, um, whose work is brilliant. And I feel, yeah, but and but so there's that element of like, we've lost the kind of moral basis of how to make moral arguments, because what we have instead is sort of moralizing and subjective, whatever. Um, so anyway, that's just to give the backdrop. Yeah, I think there's, there's an, int- I mean, it, to the extent there is an explanation or, or a main driver within that kind of cluster of ideas it is moral confusion. I think that's, that is really central to the account he gives. But I think there is, you know, he, he, I did find it convincing in some ways where he, he's kind of making the case for returning human judgment uh, agency to discussions about fear and moving them away from a medicalized um, kind of <clears throat> discourse, if you want to use that word, that comes to stand in if, if the moral um, kind of, if the moral dimension is absent, because that, at least then it's kind of, um, you know politicizing it or or putting it in terms of like here are here are different positions that you you can take and this is what it means for a, a good life or this is how it's related but what to is but what is that things. position apart from don't be afraid you know like apart oh. from the injunction to be less fearful what is the what is a meaningful response how do you restore moral consensus you know like what you're supposed to go and tell people in the street, how they should raise their kids or something. I mean, what is the... Exactly. And, 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 and paradoxically, that's exactly what he's against, telling people how to raise their kids. So it's... Indeed, right? So... I mean, so I, mean, I, think, I, I, I think... I mean, it's I mean, it's a genuine question, George. I mean, you know, I don't see Ooh, what I, the position a, is. Yeah, I mean, it's in, it's in the book, I would say. Uh, I can point you to page 258. There's, you know, anytime there's a table, I'm always... Oh, tables are so... Um, any if any listener ever writes a, a book tables tables are great tell me tell me about the table so yeah. it's got like it's got a lot of things which which make this kind of moral system and i think all of them are to be are to be defended i mean it's no but sure, sure. Question, but, but the, the question, question is how to defend you, how to defend, defend them no because we can agree that these are good things right well yeah sure i prefer these values to the other values 
and then oh, what? you have to i mean look to your to your history of ethics textbooks and you know it's virtue you know virtues are practiced and you have to live these things and I so guess we have to return to virtue what but I mean, this oh, is then it's just a moral guide. Like, this is like some nineteenth-century moral guide, which you know. But even you know. worse, I mean, you know, like what you know, so what recreating the morality of the ancients in conditions of capitalist modernity? I mean, what like? No, I mean, it's, it's a bit facile to be like, oh, it's capitalist modernity. There's nothing we can do. Oh, just like throw no, no, but, but, but you, but, but you, you talk know, a lot, you you talk a lot not, about. You know, I'm not saying that. So why are you caricaturing the position? No, and George, My you talk a lot is, about a material materialist analysis and i mean that is you know yeah, blindingly sometimes you have materialism missing. sometimes you have idealism no come on that's together. that's that's a basic let, let me just let me just bring it bring I it back i have a serious okay. point if okay. you want if you would like to hear it but these you know these i think it's part you know pointing out what these um the constituent parts of this kind of moral system are that is somewhat valuable in itself because it allows you to connect this if you buy the argument this central characteristic of of our contemporary culture with a lot of ways of behaving it allows you to to <clears throat> identify some of the ways in which these moral values are transgressed i mean i'm not i'm not going to defend it to the to the death because it's not probably the the approach that i would use but i think it's not valuable to be completely dismissive of this and to say well actually you know openness to risk taking valuation of experimentation these things are to be defended and how do you value so we... but how do you value experimentation and combine that with traditional values right yeah well that's contradiction but you don't have to take this traditional values bit i mean no no it, 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 this is in the book i mean if you're if you're trying yeah, to defend the book you can't just pick and choose i, I you know i think I think, look, the, the problem with this is, is that even, look, I'm on board with courage and confidence towards a future. I think courage actually is a hugely important virtue because it underpins all other um, virtues, right? So I think it's hugely important. But I I, I don't make my politics courage because I, I don't know what to do with that. And what you end up with in this book is fear predominating everywhere. Its opposite is courage or confidence. This ends up just being a play of essential antinomies or, you know, this dichotomy of fear and courage. And it's kind of transhistorical in which courage used to dominate. And then suddenly that withers away and fear has come to dominate over confidence. My problem, and, my problem and, and is actually, that it's... And, and what do you do with that? I mean, I, I you know, well, it, it, surely, I, surely I those two are in play at the same time, that they're contradictory and that they have material embodiments. And this just seems to be like, oh, fear kind of emerged you know, and we don't get an analysis of why that happened. And even if you were to, um, you know, input your own uh, explanation, which is what Phil did, for example, the defeat of revolution, um, you know, the, the breakdown after the First World War, all the rest of it, then even, even if you buy that explanation, then it's still a little bit of a tragic stance where you go, well, well, we have to return to that. But we know that those are materially, no, I think those, you know. So I, I tend to, I mean, I think that's the problem, right? It, the only kind of, and this pushes us I to the next issue I wanted to raise, which is what are the politics that correspond to to these different outlooks? Um, because it seems to me the problem with the Faradian, you know, if you kind of squeeze, if you try and squeeze a politics out of the analysis, it can only really be an existential or romantic one. One that's based on... Um, kind of um, demonstrations of will, essentially, um, and with no real connection to, you know, kind of um, uh, organized, no, no connection to questions of public power, um, political, the nature of political authority, representation, political interests, material interests, um, or organized agencies of change. It's left to individuals to kind of assert themselves and impose themselves on the world. Um, and if they fail to do so, it becomes a moral failure, you know, kind of an existential failure. And so, so that's yeah. the that seems to me like a weak basis on which to mount a challenge to the problems that are identified. Um, so I wanted, I mean, you know, that's what I'm saying to you, George. But I want also, you know, I want to kind of yeah, okay, I have, a, I have a, I have. What a are response. the contrasting? I know, and I'm asking a further question. What are the contrasting analyses, or the what are the contrasting political positions that come out of Robin's analysis and Freddy's analysis? Okay, well, <clears throat> to take these questions in the order that you posed them, 
or some of the many questions that you posed. I think the the point about like what is a politics that you get out of Faraday's account? Well, the most sympathetic reading I think would be that it's kind of pre-political in the sense of okay, you want to you want a revolutionary working class politics. What is the first thing you need to do to have a look at the sorts of subjects who could make that politics and in that process of subject formation you emphasize kind of individual responsibility control um moral autonomy agency all these sorts of things i mean and that's a you know as i said that's probably the all the most sympathetic reading i can i can give i think the the least sympathetic reading <laughs> is that <clears throat> essentially power as you said phil uh, sort of sees it as a, this kind of in the start as a starting point in the introduction, but not followed through at all. So he says, what endows both the rhetoric and the reality of the culture of fear with force is that it gives a voice to moral uncertainties and the sensibility of powerlessness in contemporary society. It's like, well, yeah, this, I mean, but what this powerlessness is not just a cultural phenomenon. It's a political one. It's a political yeah. and material thing. And so you have to struggle with that and you have to do something about that and you know taking control or that sort of thing that's the only response that you could have otherwise it's going to be potentially trapped so that's as i said those are the two uh answers i would give to the first part of that but sorry alex you wanted to no and and and, you know robin is obviously wears his politics on his sleeve i mean he says that fear is the opposite to or you know freedom would be the opposite of fear and that only by having a politics in pursuit of freedom equality justice that you can combat fear which comes from above you know it's an instrument that's used and it's used to prevent freedom the way that you can do that come very concretely is to fight for freedom in the workplace for working class empowerment and emancipation um for 80 you know obviously doesn't have that um in fact you know you could point out that the fact that he doesn't talk about the workplace is telling because the workplace is in many you know especially for like manual labor a place of brutalization and domination so this kind of vulnerable subject where you're treated with kid gloves and you're told to be fearful and whatever isn't the reality of the workplace for a lot of manual labor you know um the number of injuries and whatever that amazon workers have construction workers who are injured and die and whatever so it's not really a world of health and safety there's a kind of ideological sheen of health and safety and vulnerability and all the kind of other kind of liberal postmodern bullshit but the reality isn't that so i think that's an important contradiction there where you know between the ideology of fearfulness for lack of a better word and the reality of um lack of protection actually um i'm not sure i wouldn't I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't rush to be so bold about those things without kind of, um, you know, having looked perhaps more systematically at the statistics on workplace injuries and intensity of work and so on. Um, but also, I don't think you know, like, I don't think it's mean, you know, to. It's very clearly kind of a social phenomenon, right? I mean, that, and it's not as if the workplace is an island that's separate from. Um, the experience of kind of the banal experience of fear. No, but but I'm so, suggesting that there's safetyism for some and not for others, right? So I think that there's a, a class dimension to that, which is. I'm sure. I'm sure that's true, but I mean, I don't. You know, I don't think that it's as if the working class live in some. Um, you know, some kind of. Uh, uh, separate. No, no, uh, not and not all of the working class. By, not all of the working class by any means. You know, I don't think it's a certainly like, you know, their experience of life will be, um, you know, doubtless, I mean, by definition, it'll be less comfortable um, and more oppressive and difficult than, um, you know, those of uh, of higher income groups. But I don't think, you know, I don't, I think it's, uh, I think it evades the, the challenge of trying to understand the phenomena of the prevalence of fear if we just assume that it doesn't exist you know that safetyism doesn't exist in... um, no 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 i'm not saying it doesn't exist there i'm just saying that the the because we, we questioned whether you know because safetyism exists but it's an ism it's an ideology we don't we can't necessarily read off from that that people themselves feel vulnerable etc and by the same measure we can't read off from the safetyism in the workplace can. that people are actually no, for example th- protected because they aren't i i think you can and um you know they're protected to some extent but in a different way right so they're protected by kind of um you know uh, human resources bureaucracies 
Um, so their protection is kind of of a different quality than, say, being represented in union structures where there is, um, or at least, you know, there would have been um, a greater degree for or a greater possibility, perhaps, of control over the workplace, right? So I'm not sure that it, I'm not, I, I just want to push back a bit against kind of, um, I think you're, uh, perhaps evading the challenge which is posed to us by the book and i take you know i think i mean you know if you wanted to kind of render the thesis kind of in the crudest possible terms um in the context in which Faraday originally developed these ideas in the mid in the mid 90s um in the mid to late 90s you know there was i mean the basic idea is what you know all this kind of um all the uh, assumptions of radical politics can't be taken for granted if there is such a basic parallel, you know, basic um, cultural and social blocks to any kind of human activity. Right. But that's, um, but then that, and, but that's the basic assertion here that, you know, effectively politics is downstream from culture. And I think that's the fundamental. Yeah. And that's, I think, and that is, yes. And so I think, and that is telling because it is a concession to, um, you know, it's a concession to a kind of politics that, um, that Faraday was, uh, you know, had been critical of um, previously. Um, so I think that's no. right. And I think um, I'd make my point again about the existential. But if I just make one point before before I bring you back in, George, sure. I mean, I think I think it's he deprives himself of. He, I mean, I think it's problematic that Faraday deprives himself of Marxist um, analyses that would actually help his account. So it's, you know, it's kind of very striking to read this um, account of a society that's dominated by these um, kind of decentralized amorphous forces before which it's powerless. You know, and that is very, you know, that's not a society which has lost its, you know, just kind of lost its traditional moral consensus or whatever. That society that's dominated by capital, by definition, the kind of the amorphous social force which is um, not under the control of any human agency. So what he's describing is a society that is, by definition, you know, kind of one that is um, adrift. And that is capitalist society, right? So he deprived, you know, he ends up kind of essentially um, mystifying, I think, you know, basic, a basic account of, um, of, so, of a very basic social phenomena. And the other element is alienation. Right, you end. He ends up kind of re-describing in kind of sociologies uh, the basic kind of structure of powerlessness, of helplessness, of confusion, um, and but at the same time, whereas in the classical kind of Marxist rendering, the point about alienation was that this is the form that human, you know, human agency is um, mangled through the structures, through the social structures of capitalism, that it takes forms that end up being oppressive and dominating and in contradiction with um, intention, human intentionality. So it's, a, you know, the point about alienation was that it's the contradiction that's internal to human agency by deprive, you know, by refusing to use those kinds of concepts, he ends up with the, um, with this kind of shapeless account where there is actually no connection to human agency at all. And so you're left kind of wondering where it comes from. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think the <clears throat> the, the point that I was just going to make, just to bring it back quickly to, to safetyism, it just reminded me of this. And this is also related to the question at the beginning about fear being anticlimactic. Um, it's from, just from J.G. Ballard, a, a, a pretty... Uh, <clears throat> a good source uh, after being bombarded endlessly by road safety propaganda it was almost a relief to find myself in an actual accident and this is taken from <laughs> uh, this the safety propaganda substack which is an excellent one by adam lira and i guess the, the point there is that it just it just made me think like safetyism isn't something that um everybody in society is equally susceptible to there's a, a certain class i mean i'm, I'm not going to use their three-letter acronym because people some people are triggered by it <laughs> but there's a, you know people I'm di there is a an embrace to of the politics of fear by 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 some groups in society this road safety propaganda is bought into um by by the, the oh, sorry the pmc and, but say, say who they and are say explains... who they are not not with a not with a jargonistic PMC. term say, no no that's jargon say what kind oh, of professions are they what kind of people are they so people who kind of in professional careers or managerial positions 
No, but what kind of profession? So yeah. a doc, so a doctor yeah, yeah. or a nurse? We, we've or no, I'm I'm just saying this because I we should be specific and not just have recourse to PMC, which means different things to different people, right? So in well, it, saying saying people, people saying, for example, a, a manager in an, in an NGO, a communications worker, a um, a nurse, I don't know who are the you know an example of of well, what you want me to give is. like a, a, a total biography of what? No, <laughs> come on, right, just, right, just right, somebody, right. Let me intercede. Somebody... I think the issue is there, right? I mean, I don't, you know, I'm sure there are different, um, you know, different social groups will buy into different kinds of um, fears um, and they'll have their favorite kind of fear, right? I mean, one yeah. thing that I think is quite striking, for instance, is though, um, you know, the kind of man in the street, the kind of working class attitude, and it's parodied frequently in Britain, right? That they, they despise health and safety, for instance. But one thing that's very, you know, on the other hand, like, um, uh, and this is very clear, like I think, you know, the kind of, um, working there is a genuine kind of working class um uh horror of um pedophilia and a particular kind of fury around um around kind of ch crimes against children sexual and kind of violent crimes against children um so i think different social groups like yeah. buy in to different aspects of these phenomena in different ways. I mean, that's certainly true, right? But I don't think as if there is, you know, that um, there are social groups that are somehow stand apart from from uh, the culture of fear entirely. I think, um, and then you why saying, different saying, groups? You're saying middle-class people who send their kids to boarding school don't care about those kids. It's a no, horrible you, thing to say. No, you know I'm not saying that, George. Um, so, but the, so, I mean, the question of why different groups kind of attach themselves to different kinds of fears, I think is, um, you know, is something which is actually worth well, thinking yeah. about in greater depth and, um, and would have been, Faraday's book would have benefited from doing that more systematically. So, so just one, one kind of final point on this and the kind of free floating nature of it and to compare it to Robin, which is what we were doing. Interestingly, what uh, reading this book brought to mind was Robin's account of Arendt specifically the Arendt of the origins of totalitarianism, where there it's also similarly totalizing, um, a similar total, in that case, totalitarianism here, the culture of fear. Um, and it, it ends up kind of mystifying what's going on. You know, what this is clearly something that's historically novel, but it's hard to account for why it is or how one would break free from it. And one can contrast that with the sort of concrete sociology that is found in Eichmann in Jerusalem, which is more Weberian, for lack of a better way to put it, you know, interested in um, organizations and bureaucracies and the sort of man, you know, or woman that that creates, the sort of question of subjectivity. Um, so uh, in the end, I feel like Freddy draws on interesting references, which I think are very worthwhile reading, but ends up a kind of very uh, withered and thin version of them. So I already referenced Alistair McIntyre, and again, it's an inferior version of that. Or Christopher Lash, who he references specifically uh, the culture of narcissism, which I think is in the end notes. But likewise, you know, Lash identifies this transformation at some point in the 1970s or 1960s. Um, so it's a much more determinate start point and it's an argument which is grounded in freudian psychoanalysis and it pursues that diagnosis across a range of of areas where freudes seems to draw opportunistically from you know the the classics from renaissance thinkers giambattista vico whoever you know just to bolster his point but without any kind of consistent reading of these thinkers either Eva Luz, who is a sociologist as well, like working contemporarily, um, and who we read at the very end of last year, uh, her book on emotional capitalism, it's also dedicated to these questions of subjectivity, um, but it's a much more determinate, concrete analysis of these things. It has a similar thrust, but it's much more grounded. And even in a way, though Freddie definitely doesn't reference um, the Frankfurt School, it has a, a similar tone to some of the Frankfurt School and being tragic about subjectivity and historical possibility. But unlike with the Frankfurt School, question alienation never appears, which Phil rightly pointed out, capitalism never appears, and there's no critique of the market or its values. So it really ends up being a very desiccated version of these influences that he draws from. So I guess that takes us to the final kind of thematic, which is the inspiration as well for this section of the reading list about the rolling emergency regimes that we seem to live under now, global war on terror, um, moving into lockdown, moving into a geopolitical standoff with Russia, whatever. Um, or so 
in in that context, um, whose account is more useful to understand of the of the thinkers we've dealt with thus far? Which is to say, um, or what do we want to take from any of these thinkers? So Robin, Faraday, Agamben, Schmidt. It's a good question. I'm I'm usually very much in favour of of redu- reducing. Like you can only pick one. You have to not burn the other three books, but you have to delete them off your Kindle or whatever. But actually, I think you know. So who'd that, you pick, George? Well, un- unusually, I think they are—they all add something, and none of them. But maybe the, the way to put it is that none of them is sufficient. Like I think there's there isn't a single, and this is a good thing, I guess. You know, for if you want to have to think about things, but there's no single like you can get this book, whack it down the table. This is what I believe now. It, it solves all the problems and and addresses all the contradictions of you know 2022 society um yeah so i mean i i'm i think it maybe it's too early to say and we'll see which one <laughs> in six months comes back and it's like ah I, I keep coming back to that the the ideas keep keep returning to my well to my at, at the end of at the end of june we'll we will of course sum up um this whole section which accounted for the first six months of the year um so we'll do that this is maybe just preliminary check-in um will we, will we delete all the episodes except the most useful one <laughs> No, I don't think so. Uh, Phil, um, why don't you answer the question? Yeah, I. Hmm, it's a tricky one, um, and I'm not sure. I, you know, I'm not sure. I mean, I think you'd have to take strands from each, and I'm, you know, I'm not quite sure exactly um, which which strands I would choose from each thinker. But there's no, you know, I don't think there's any avoiding kind of um, the some of the elements being. Uh, providing you with the categories to capture um, the politics of emergency today. Um, yeah. As for you know how far they provide you with responses, I think. I mean, I I don't think Robin stresses freedom enough. I think he's come to stress freedom more in the politics of in his fear book, fear history of an idea. It's still kind of very much um, enthralled to. Uh, restoring new deal liberalism um, to as the solution to fear American style. Um, but I think freedom is certainly like defending freedom politically and also connecting it to questions of political power and control. Like George said, I mean, it's powerlessness is not just kind of, uh, it's not just a kind of a question of individual attitude and outlook, but a question of actual control. Um, and that politics has been structured in such ways in across the period that Faraday has been talking about. It's been explicitly organized in such ways to deprive people of control. It's not just something which is kind of an artifact of um, the media and NGOs and um, and what have you, or kind of internalized through child rearing. So I think, you know, that question of um, control through or gaining um Ending powerlessness, powerlessness, uh, that is something which, uh, you know, should be put on the table. No, I think that's very well put. I actually won't even add anything to that um, because we'll come back to this as well. Just to let you know, next time we will be doing Michel Foucault's The Birth of Biopolitics. We'll be doing selections from it. So it's not the whole book. It's chapters four, five, six, nine, and 10, and we'll upload that so you have access to it. Uh, of course, any questions and comments you have about this episode will be dealt with next month. Uh, and of course, as usual, we try to record these on the last Wednesday of the month thereabout, but we'll announce all this. Uh, we hope you enjoyed this. Uh, we hope you've uh, grasped something, I guess, about the politics or culture of fear. Um, and we'll be back with more on this theme in a month's time. Catch you later. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye.